Chapter number 12 of Mary Wearer in Texas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Maria Anastasiadis. Mary Wearer in Texas by Annie Fellows Johnston. In Blue Bonnet Time. The time of blue bonnets had come. No matter where else in Texas the lupin may grow, one thing is certain. There is enough of it in the meadows around Bower nearly every spring to justify its choice as the state flower. This particular March, acres and acres of it, blue as the Mediterranean, stretched away on either side of the high roads. Viewed from a distance when the wind, blowing across it, made waves of bloom, it almost seemed as if a wide blue sea were rolling in across the land. From his bed near the window, Jack Ware could catch a glimpse of one of these meadows, where the castles stood buried up to their bodies in the fragrant blossoms. Now and then the breeze, fluttering his curtains, brought the odor to him almost as heavy and sweet as the smell of locusts. He watched the picture with languid eyes, which closed weakly at intervals. They were shut when Mary tiptoed into the room, to see if there was anything she could do for his comfort before starting out on her usual afternoon excursion with her pupils, but they opened with an expression of greater interest than they had held for some days as he saw her standing there in a freshly laundered gingham. It was so blue and white that she suggested a blooming blue bonnet herself. Hello, Finnegan, he said, with an attempt at his old-time pleasantry. Off again, gone again, are you? Which way this time? Touched almost to tears by this evidence of returning interest, Mary explained eagerly that they were still studying about bees. She had found a bee tree in the herd pasture, and the lupin was all abuzz with specimens to illustrate the lesson. That was for the wisdom part of it. For the strength, there were some new exercises in climbing and hanging from a low limb. The practical application of their courtesy lesson would be the gathering of a great basketful of blue bonnets for the ladies of the guild, who wanted to decorate the parish house with them for an entertainment to be given there. Oh, they're making long strides, she assured him. Mrs. Mowry told me that the time it rained so hard last week and I couldn't get across the footbridge at the ford to give them their usual lesson. Brod sat down at bedtime and howled because he'd said he'd have to count the day lost. The sun was down and he hadn't any word reaction done. It took the combined wits of the family to think of some worthy action he could do at that late hour, and he finally went to bed happy. So you see, my labor hasn't been all in vain. There was a faint gleam of amusement in Jack's eyes, but seeing that she was about to leave him, he turned the subject by motioning towards the table beside his bed, where Elsie Tremont's wedding invitations lay. Mary, he said slowly, would you be surprised if Phil were to come by Bower on his way to California? To her vehement avowal that such a happening would certainly surprise her out of a year's growth, at least he answered, well, I am a good deal more than halfway looking for him. I feel it in my bones that he is coming and coming very soon. Oh, Jack, she cried in distress. Don't look for him. Don't set your heart on seeing him. I couldn't bear for you to be disappointed. Don't you worry about that, he answered soothingly. 
You'll run along and pick your blue bonnets, and if Phil should happen to come walking down the road towards you one of these days, remember the feeling in my bones warned you. The poor old things have been so full of aches and pains that you might allow them one pleasant sensation at least. But Jack, she began again, a wrinkle of distress deepening between her eyes, if he shouldn't come, you'd be so awfully disappointed. Jack's thin hand waved both her and her objections aside. Hike along, he insisted cheerfully. I merely said if. Considerably worried by what she thought was a groundless hope of Jack's, Mary started out of the gate. His suggestion seemed to change the entire landscape, and instead of seeing as it had grown to look to her accustomed eyes, she saw it as she imagined it would appear to Phil, the cottage she was leaving behind her, the wide blue lupin meadows ahead, blossoms mingled with the glowing branches of the red bud trees, and every lane and stretch of woodland. With her old childish propensity for daydreaming unabated, she made pictures for herself as she walked along towards the footbridge. Suppose he really would come, and she, by some institution of his approach, could divine the day and hour. She would like to be all in white when he met her, emerging from the edge of the woods with her arms heaped up with snowy masses of wild plum blossoms and a spray of red bud in her hair. Or maybe it would be more picturesque for her to be standing in the boat, pulling slowly towards the landing, a cargo of wild flowers at her feet, like a picture of the spirit of spring. Here she broke off from her musings, saying, half aloud, but as sure as I posed to look like a spring goddess, I'd be looking like a young goose. It doesn't pay for me to plan impressive entrances and meetings. They always turn out with my looking perfectly ridiculous. She had reached the first turn in the road by this time, and stooping to tie her shoe, suddenly became aware of the fact that her hands were empty. She had started off without the alarm clock and the magnifying glass, which she always carried on these trips. In addition, she had intended to bring a large market basket today in which to put the flowers. The basket, with the clock and glass inside, was in her hand before she started. She remembered she had set it down for a moment on the front step while she went back into Jack's room, and it was what he said about Phil's coming that made her go off without it. Lose. So she started back running all the way. Snatching up the basket from the step where she found it still undisturbed, she was starting off again when a little bird-like cry stopped her. It was like the softest notes of a mockingbird. That provoking little wildcat is out of her cage again, she exclaimed, stopping to look all around. Here, Matilda, kitty, kitty, where are you? In response to her call, what seemed to be the gentlest of house kittens came bounding through the grass, thinking it would be less trouble to take it along than to carry it back to its cage in the woodshed when she was in such a great hurry, Mary caught it up in her arms and once more started down the road. One hand slipped through the handle of the basket. It snuggled down against her shoulder, purring loudly. You're ridiculous, little Adam, laughed Mary. I wonder what the girls at Warwick Hall would say if they could see me going along carrying a live wildcat. That will be something wild and Texasy for me to put in my next letters. I needn't say that it weighs only twenty ounces, and that if it weren't for its bow legs and funny little bob tail and spotted stomach, one would think it was just a tame, ordinary, domestic pussy. But you'll be savage enough by and by, won't you? 
when the tassels grow on your ear tips and your whiskers spread out wide and your spots get big and tigery. Two soft paws reached up to tap her face, and she gave the furry ball in her arms an affectionate squeeze. She had never cared especially for kittens, but this little wild one with its coquettish ways had wonderfully ingratiated itself into her affections in the week she had owned it. Mrs. Barnaby had brought it in from the branch. Cousin Sammy had found eight of them in the woods after Pedro had killed the old mother cat, caught in the act of carrying off one of the turkeys. This was the only one that lived. Mrs. Barnaby could not keep it, because, tiny as it was, it toddled around after the chickens and put even the big Plymouth Rock hence to flight. So she brought it in to Mary, and Mary, feeling particularly forlorn that day, welcomed the little orphan, because its lonely state gave them a bond in common. The day it came happened to be her eighteenth birthday, with nothing to mark it as a gala occasion except a handkerchief from her mother and a string of trout from Norman. He had gone out before daylight to catch them for her breakfast. Joyce's present did not arrive until the next day, and the round-robin letter from Warwick Hall was nearly a week late. Not until after the sorority was seated at its annual St. Patrick's Day dinner did they recall the double celebration they had the year before. The letter was written then and there, passing around the table with the bonbons, that each one present might add as a birthday greeting. Then Doreen, to whom it was entrusted, forgot to post it for several days. It was a joy when it did come, but the anniversary itself, before the letter reached her, was a disappointing day. She had always looked forward to her eighteenth birthday as being one of the most important milestones of her life. Not so important, of course, as one's graduation or debut or a wedding, but still a day that should be made memorable by something unusually nice. Years ago, Jack had promised her a watch on her eighteenth birthday, a little chatelaine watch with a mother-of-pearl case, like the one old colonel had given to Lloyd. But when the time came, Jack did not even know that it was her birthday. He never looked at the calendar since their weary, monotonous days had grown to be all alike. She did not show him the handkerchief or tell him that the delicious fish which they had for breakfast was in honor of any especial occasion. In no way did she refer to its being the 17th of March. She ironed all morning and took the children out in the afternoon, as usual, and nothing made the day different from an ordinary one, only that she felt old and grown up and thought now and then a little pityingly of her early expectations and the way they had turned out. In a vague sort of way, she was sorry for herself, till Mrs. Barnaby came in with the baby wildcat, which she jokingly offered as a St. Patrick's Day greeting. Mary immediately named it Matilda, for Mrs. Barnaby, and for the civilizing effect, such a tame, gentle sort of name ought to have on a wild creature. In watching it and laughing over its playful antics, she forgot to feel middle-aged and sorry for herself. As long as someone could keep an eye on it to prevent it straying away after any animal that passed the house, it could be allowed the liberty of the place, but whenever Mary went off for a long time, it had to be fastened in its cage. This was the first time she had taken it with her for an afternoon's outing, and as she hurried down the road with it in her arms, the knowledge of what she was carrying gave her the first feeling of adventure she had had since coming to Texas. It's been as tame as an old tabby in a teapot, she thought, 
she had pictured texas as a land of cowboys and roundups and thrilling frontier experiences she had found only the commonplace and conventional so that there was a source of satisfaction in the fact that at last she had captured something untamed and savage as she reached the footbridge a party on horseback came down the opposite bank to cross the ford she recognized the young fellow in the lead as a boy from the east who had been staying at the williams house several months evidently he also had expected to find texas a land of adventure soon after his arrival he appeared in the quiet streets of bower attired like the cowboy of a wild west show that he was a tenderfoot was amusingly apparent to the natives everything proclaimed it from his awkward seat in his creaking new saddle to the new rope coiled around the horn of it he could have no more use for a lariat than for a tomahawk but he never rode without it he had his picture taken in full paraphernalia from his spurs to the rattlesnake skin band on his rakish sombrero to send back home to show what a sport he had become and his cup of satisfaction brimmed over when a still more recent tenderfoot took a snapshot of him evidently considering him the real thing he had three eastern girls with him this morning whom he was trying to impress with stories of his recklessness and prowess and of the dangers one daily encountered in a new country he had met norman and he knew mary by sight and had heard of her odd pet as they approached her he said in a tone which she could not fail to hear although he lowered his voice there's mighty little out here that is tame lots of people keep foxes running around their premises instead of rat terriers and when they can get a wildcat they always prefer them to tame monsters mr stop stuffing us one of the girls exclaimed i don't believe a word of it it's the truth he insisted that very young lady over yonder on the footbridge could tell you so that isn't a kitten she is carrying it is a young wildcat the next instant the girl was splashing through the water across to mary calling excuse me but is that a wildcat i can't believe it mary had heard the conversation and her face dimpled with amusement as she held matilda up to view saying certainly see how beautifully she is marked she pointed out the various signs which proved her claim the girl gave a little shriek for mercy's sakes she exclaimed suppose it should get loose what a dreadful country aren't you afraid assured that mary was not in the least afraid she dashed up to the bank after her laughing escort who thereafter had no trouble in convincing her that his most daring tales were true since matilda had proved the truth of his first one mary looked after them almost enviously when she first came to the bower she had faint hopes of sometime being able to join a riding party like that she had girls going by often from the hotel and had told herself that before the winter was over she intended to find some way to earn enough to hire a horse one afternoon of every week in that time when she visited gay and roberta talked off saddles when she combed mary's hair roberta had said that she would ride up to bower some time after christmas all her crowd would go and they would stay several days at the williams house and mary was to show them the country gay had promised several visits and mary had looked forward to them more eagerly than she knew till word came soon after new year that the bower trips would have to be postponed indefinitely roberta had gone to the coast for the rest of the winter 
and Gay expected to spend several months with her sister Lucy, Mrs. Jameson Harcourt, in Florida. It seemed to Mary that there had been disappointment for her in Texas winter every way she turned. True, Gay was home now, and they had two pleasant days with her, once when she and Alex Shelby came up to announce their engagement and cheered Jack up so wonderfully, but Gay wasn't interested in horseback riding with the crowd any longer. Besides, the Ware fortunes had taken such a turn that the money she had succeeded in earning had to go for more necessary things than saddles and horse hire and a pretty habit. As Mary glanced after the departing cavalcade once more, the sight of them suggested a new picture that appealed to her as an interesting way to meet Phil in case he should come. It would be so picturesque to be galloping down the road on a meddlesome black horse in a pretty white riding habit like those girls were wearing. White, with a scarlet foreign hand and a soft fold of scarlet silk around the crown of her wide-brimmed white hat. Phil had been such a dashing horseman himself, and had owned such a beautiful animal when they were out in the desert, that maybe he would be more interested in an approach made that way than one in a boat with a cargo of wild flowers. She walked along slowly, considering the question, till Brud and sister hailed her. Meanwhile, Jack was saying to his mother that it wouldn't have been fair to the kid to let her get away without some inkling of the truth. She'd have been so terribly upset if I'd have told her that they are due here this afternoon, and she'd have been equally upset if they had walked in on her without any warning, but the hint I gave her will start her to thinking about them, so she will not be altogether surprised when she sees them. Had he waited until Mary left the house before breaking the news to his mother that he expected Alex Shelby to come sometime during the afternoon, bringing Dr. Tremont and Phil. But even then he did not mention the faint hope which had buoyed him up night and day since Alex's first visit. He had faith in the young physician's ability, but not until the older one confirmed his opinion would he allow himself to share that hope with anyone else, lest it prove without foundation. With his eyes on the clock, he lay counting the minutes until their arrival. He was deliberately forcing himself to be calm to take slow, even breaths, to think of everything under the sun save the one thing which set his pulses to beating wildly and sent a thrill, like fire tingling through him. He lay there like a prisoner in his dungeon who hears footsteps and new voices approaching. They might mean that a deliverance is at hand, or they might pass on, leaving him to the blackness and despair of his dungeon for the rest of his life. In a like agony of apprehension, he watched the pendulum swing back and forth and listened to the slow tick-tock till his suspense grew almost unendurable. One hand clasped and unclasped a corner of the counterpane in a paroxysm of nervousness. He lay with his face turned away from his mother, and she, busy with her endless sewing over by the side window, did not guess what great effort he was making to retain his outward composure. She saw his eyes fixed on the clock. However, when she rose to get a spool that had rolled away, and feeling his restrained restlessness, she tried to think of something to talk about, which would make him forget how slowly time was passing. Subjects of that kind are rare. When two people have been constantly shut in together for a year, and while she considered, a long silence fell between them. 
it was broken by a demand almost querulous from jack the same cry that had aroused her in the night when he was a little boy suddenly awakening from a scary dream sing to me mother it had been years since she had heard that cry and the long form stretched out under the white covers bore small resemblance to the little one that had summoned her then but she answered in the same soothing way all right little son what shall i sing she smiled as the same tremulous answer came now as it had then why sing my song of course she did not rise as had been her custom to go to his bedside and hold his hand while she lulled him back to sleep with her low humming and the blessed consciousness of her nearness he was a grown man now and it was broad daylight but instinctively she felt his need was greater than it had ever been and her voice took on tenderest soothing quality as she began to croon the old hymn that had always been his chosen lullaby when he was tucked to sleep in a little crib bed pilgrims of the night she sang hark hark my soul angelic songs are swelling o'er earth's green fields and ocean's wave-beat shore glancing across she saw his drawn face relax a trifle and he snuggled his thin cheek contentedly against the pillow high and sweet her voice rose tremulously angels of light singing to welcome the pilgrims of the night the song had many associations for them both what he was thinking about she could not guess but when she began the third verse far far away like bells at evening pealing her own thoughts were back in that time when she rocked in her arms the dearest little son that ever cuddled against the mother's shoulder she was recalling time after time when she had held him so telling him good-night stories listening to his funny little questions and baby confidences and kissing the dimpled fingers clasped in her own when he knelt to lisp his evening prayer he had always been a comfort to her even in the boisterous outbreaking days that are the most trying in a boy's growing up time there had never been a noisier boy or one who threw himself into his play with more headlong vigor but in a flash scene after scene passed through her mind showing him both at work and play he had prayed he might be strong and manly and clean and absolutely fearless either of fists or opinions then she thought of his touching consideration of her when he tried to take father's place behind a plow he had been a tower of strength to her from that day on what a future she had dreamed for him tired of his young manhood when he should have years of conquest and achievement ahead of him here he was a helpless cripple rest comes at last though life be long and dreary the day must dawn and darksome night be past her voice faltered almost to breaking now as she sang on rebelling at the thought that his life which promised so fair should have been made long and dreary changed so hopelessly and so suddenly into darksome night it seemed so cruel she thought with a tightening of the throat which made it almost impossible to finish the song but supposing from the peaceful expression of jack's face that he was falling asleep she sang bravely on to the end although the tears were dropping down on the seam in her now idle hands angels sing on your faithful wretches keeping sing us sweet fragments of the song above till morning's joys shall end the night of weeping and life's long shadows break into cloudless love 
angels of Jesus, angels of light, singing to welcome the pilgrims of the night. Looking across as the last note died away, she thought he was asleep and rose to draw down the window shade. Past him, he opened his eyes and held out his hand to draw her to him. Little mother, he said with a wistful smile that made her bend hastily over to him and kiss his forehead to hide the trembling of her lips. I'd like you to know, in case anything should happen, sooner than we expect, that's the way I think of death. It's a going out into the dark, going as a pilgrim of the night. I don't mind it. It'll not be lonesome. They'll be singing to welcome me. In answer to her cry, Oh, Jack, don't! drew her cheek down against his, and as he felt it wet with tears, he said lightly, Why, mother mine, that's nothing to cry about. I've always looked forward in a way that ever since I can remember. That song always helps bring up the most comforting picture to me, a procession of friendly white angels coming down the dark road to meet a frightened little boy and lead him home. She held him close a moment not finding words wherewith to answer him, but feeling that he understood all that was left unspoken in her heart. She wanted to hold him thus, always so tightly, that he could not slip away on that pilgrimage he faced so confidently, that pilgrimage from which he could never return to her. While she clung to him thus, a noise outside brought them back to the things of earth. An automobile, speeding up the road, had stopped at the gate. Mrs. Ware glanced out hastily, as she saw the three men striding up the path, her first thought was one of housewifely dismay. She wondered how she could stretch the simple supper she had planned for that evening into enough for these unexpected guests. If Jack had only given her a longer notice. But that thought was immediately thrust aside in her pleasure at seeing Phil again. First time since the day she bade him goodbye in the little wigwam sitting room, not with her godspeed to make a man of himself. His waywardness had given her a motherly interest in him, and now her quick glance showed that he had not disappointed her, that he had kept every promise. She welcomed him with a welcome that made him feel that this was a real homecoming, so that he called out to that distinguished-looking, gray-haired old doctor just behind him, Now, Daddy, you see for yourself how it was. Mrs. Ware ushered them at once into Jack's room. She knew he was waiting impatiently to see them, but did not dream how much was at stake. It was nearly half an hour later when Phil discovered that he was thirsty and asked the way to the well. Mrs. Ware led him out through the kitchen, picking up a pitcher and tumbler as she went. The windmill was in motion. The was gushing from the pump spout into the pitcher. Phil said meaningly, Well, Aunt Emily, your prodigal has come back. Yes, she responded, it makes me glad and proud to see how my faith in him has been justified. But oh boy, why don't you give me a little warning so that we might have time to make ready a fine fatted calf? Jack never told me until a few minutes before you arrived that he expected you. I'd rather have the pleasure of surprising you all than to share in the fatted calf any day. Besides, there won't be an occasion for trotting out such a commodity. Alex will be going back to San Antonio in less than an hour. You see, he has only a few more days to spend with his lady love, as he is due in Kentucky the last of this week. He can't afford to miss even one of these gorgeous moonlight days. Daddy is so tired with his trip and thinking of the strain ahead of him that he is in no trim for visiting. On the way here, we stopped at the Williams' house and engaged rooms for tonight. 
I promised him that he needn't stay up for supper his room and turn in soon after we had made a short call here. You see, he didn't sleep at all coming out here, so he is considerably worse for wear. He's very much interested in Jack's case and thinks something may be done to relieve his suffering, so maybe it will be as well for us to stay out here a bit and give them a chance to look him over. From the quick lighting up of Mrs. Ware's face, it was evident that such a hope was a new one to her. Jack had not mentioned the prospect of an operation, so Phil left the subject as quickly as possible, beginning to tell her of his last visit to Joyce. As he had come directly from her, Mrs. Ware found so much to question him about that she was surprised, when Alex Shelby joined them, to find that they had been leaning against the windmill tower for more than half an hour too interested to think of finding a seat. Alex's face was glowing, and he looked across at Phil with a nod of elation. Your father confirms my opinion, Phil, so I'll be starting back at once. Dr. Tremont's real purpose in coming, she was thankful that Jack had spared her all those days of anxiety and apprehension that would have been hers if she had known of the operation earlier, as it was there would be only one night in which to dread it. Alex was coming back in the morning with a nurse, and it would be all over by noon of the next day. Now she understood their consideration in going to a hotel. It was not so much that Dr. Tremont was in no condition for visiting, as that they knew that any guests, no matter how much desired, would be a burden on the eve of such an event. Jack's room was already nearly as bare and clean as a hospital ward, but there would still be much to do before the surgeons could begin their delicate and vital task. So when Alex Shelby went away, Dr. Tremont went with him as far as the hotel. Phil was to follow later, after he had seen Mary and had the pleasure of surprising her. End of chapter 12 Recording by Maria Anastasiades